What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome to American Muse Podcast, where we explore hidden secrets in the landscape of 19th and 20th century American orchestral music. Your host is Dr. Grant Gilman, conductor, violinist, and author based in Atlanta, Georgia. In each episode, Grant unearths a fresh orchestral work by an American composer you may not even know. And by the end, we hope you are a new fan of the composer and their music. Now, your host, Maestro Grant Gilman. So today's guest on the American Muse podcast is a dynamic person and fantastic conductor and musician. In addition to his position as music director of the Symphony of Southeast Texas, where my father has played under him for many years, he is principal pops conductor of the New Haven Symphony. Having already guest conducted all over the United States and Europe, he is persisting through the pandemic to conduct this season in Greensboro, Bridgeport, Lake Charles, Toledo, and at the Color of Music Festival in Charleston. His work in community leadership is very well regarded. The Natchez River Foundation in Beaumont, Texas named him Citizen of the Year. Capital One Bank gave him the Community Spotlight Award, and none other than the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra made him the first annual Aspire Award recipient. And as if all that wasn't enough, I've been told he's one of the nicest people you will ever meet. Here he is, maestro Chelsea Tipton. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here with you. I've heard a lot about you from your dad. Your dad's very proud of you. And so it's nice to have a chance to finally meet you and uh, get to know you a little bit. Yeah. How long? So you've been in in, uh, in Beaumont 12 years. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask how long you overlapped, but that's a that's a dumb question because my dad's been there like a hundred years. So, uh, all twelve, quite a, quite a while. He was a concert master for a while, and when I got here, he uh, moved into another position in the orchestra. But he's been with the Symphony of Southeast Texas for de- literally decades. Yeah, um, this is my twelfth season living here, but I've been sorry uh, working here, but I've been living here for twelve years. The first year, I still had a year left on my contract in Toledo, so I was going back and forth until I finished things up there. But I've really enjoyed living down here in Southeast Texas. The people have been great. Orchestra's been great. Um, we're, and we're getting through this pandemic slowly but surely. Right. Like everybody else. Now, I do want to ask you about your little side hobby of jujitsu. So how long have you been at this? And what benefits have you gotten from it? Yeah, I started jujitsu when I first moved down here. Um, when I was in Toledo, I was with the Toledo Symphony as their associate conductor for seven years. I started Aikido uh, up there, and Aikido is a Japanese martial art. Um, it's probably a little more suited to my personality, but um, it's, the, it's really called the art of peace. And if you know the, the uh, movie star Steven Seagal, that is his fighting style. He was a, he's a master at, at Aikido, and that got piqued my interest in it. But the, the thing I liked about Aikido is that it, you try not to harm your attacker. You try to resolve things in a peaceful way, but no one gets harmed and you can, it get, there's a peaceful resolution to it. Jiu-Jitsu, when I moved here, there wasn't any Aikido in, in Beaumont. So uh, one of the foundations of Jiu-Jitsu, uh, Aikido is Jiu-Jitsu. So I started that when I first moved here. So I've been doing that for about 11 years now. I'm a purple belt. And it's been a very humbling experience, a very, very humbling experience. But it, it, 
what I love about the martial arts in general is that it teaches you about your, it kind of holds a mirror up to yourself. Also, our masks have to be taken off when we go onto the mat. I'm no longer Maestro Tipton. I'm no, you're not the Dr. Gilman. We're just two people having a very physical conversation and we're not angry at each other. We're just trying to have a conversation and one will probably win, one will probably lose. But we always say in jujitsu, there's winning and then there's learning. And I've learned the most from the times that I've lost. I, I lose a lot at my, my age, but it, it's, it's just a great hobby. And it's something that um, it will probably be a part of my life for the rest of my life. I, I, I got to say, that doesn't sound too much different at all from conducting. Well, it's, it's helped my conducting and learning how to resolve things in a peaceful way, uh, keeping your trying to, especially with Aikido, you're, you're trying to remain in the middle of the tornado, which is the calmer part of the tornado. Everything else is moving around you in a very, can be a very violent way, very active way, but to remain centered on the podium when things may be going sideways, but to remain centered and focused. <laughs> right. No, that's that. Uh, hopefully, that goes that goes better the the further you get into your career. But yeah, that definitely yeah. starts off that way. Well, well you know, I, I we did uh, one of the last concerts we did before the pandemic was Wizard of Oz. We did the movie live movie version of it, and we had to use I had to use a clock on it, and which was I found very very difficult. But we had four rehearsals. We did and everything. In the concert, like the last five minutes, the clock stopped. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I thought, well, I was conducting, it's like, huh, I'm ahead now for some reason. I didn't realize the clock had stopped and the, the, the uh, minute hand had stopped moving. And so um, then I realized I was behind because I went slower because I thought I was ahead. And um, we kind of worked it out, but to try not to panic, to try to just stay centered, do what you can. And we all ended together and no one knew, the orchestra knew, of course, but the audience had a great time. So I think martial arts teaches you to, to remain calm in the storm. Yeah. Maybe performing with a soloist does that too. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I have stories. <laughs> I definitely have stories on, on those tales as well. But you know, conducting is a um, I think there are a lot of parallels between conducting and martial arts and martial art. There is an art to these combat uh, platforms that, that we often explore. Right, right. So you had mentioned um, you wanted to talk about Duke Ellington and among other pieces, you, you mentioned Harlem, which I wasn't familiar with. So I go searching of course, you know, because I'm going to go do my homework uh, for various sources. I'm, I'm looking for a good recording. And sure. with all the best possible irony, one of the strongest that I find is a performance by the Haifa Symphony Orchestra conducted by, by Oppenheim Roy. Now, if that doesn't show Ellington's brilliance and international appeal, I don't know what does. Now, to be sure, Israel, of course, has a long tradition in performing Western music mm -hmm. at a high level. And our, our versatility as orchestra musicians is, is a vital skill. It, it, is a, it is as much a delight to me that, that not only do they play the hell out of the piece, but that there's an audience in Israel for American right. jazz. Right. Why do you think that, that Ellington is able to command such a broad range of people's tastes all over the world? Well, you know, I, I, think, I think good music is good music. And... Ellington wrote like over a thousand pieces. 
I remember going to a concert with Wynton Marsalis uh, at the Lutcher Theater in Orange, Texas, which is a, a town near Beaumont. Uh, this was probably about seven, eight years ago. And he did an entire program of Ellington's music. I knew, and I'm a professional musician, I knew two pieces on that program. He wanted to, to have the audience to experience not just the, the nugget 30 pieces that we all hear, take the A train and um, just the, um, lush life, uh, but he wanted the, the audience to hear just the breath of his, his music. And the thing I always appreciated about Ellington, which is um, I think a, a good platform for a musician in the 21st century now, is that he was not afraid to go um, into other areas, explore other areas. This piece, Harlem, uh, was written, commissioned in 1950 by Arturo Toscanini, of all people, with the New York City Orchestra. He inspired the orchestral suite. Um, it was first recorded in 1951, and it was first performed as a symphonic piece in 1955 in Carnegie Hall. But he, it's only about 14 minutes long. It's a full symphonic piece. I've done the piece several times and it really has a, uh, a jazz big band that's surrounded by an orchestra. So that poses a lot of interesting challenges. Um, but the, the big band sort of gives the groove to the orchestral musicians and it all just kind of works. But he didn't want to just stay, Ellington didn't want to just stay in his one kind of um, envelope. He wanted to really explore different types of music. And he also had a message. You know, it's, it's a tricky thing being a, a, a musician and a conductor in these days. Um, you and I were talking the other day about Gerard Schwartz. And one of the things that he said, he said on, online was that, you know, to try to remain apolitical. But Ellington wanted to try to use his music to further the human, the human cause that was going on during that time. I'd like to just read you to a little quote that he wrote about this piece, that Ellington wrote about this piece. He said, we, we would now like to take you on a tour of this place called Harlem. It is Sunday morning, we're strolling from 110th Street up to 7th Avenue, heading north through the Spanish and West Indian neighborhood towards the 125th Street business area. You may hear a parade go by or a funeral, or you may recognize the passage of those who are making civil rights demands, end quote. So even though he, he's an entertainer, he's an entertainer, but he was still trying to make a statement during this time. And I think that took incredible courage during that time. And this piece was part of that, that journey for him. He actually had more than one piece that, that bore the name Harlem, right? And, and I'm sure that they all had a similar message to it because I mean, at the time, Harlem was, was no uh, uh, neutral place at all. I mean, there was the Harlem, uh, I just said it now. I've forgotten it. the The Harlem Revolution or the Harlem uh, Harlem Renaissance. Renaissance, right? And uh, and there's no way you could put Harlem on anything at that time without um, it meaning something significant. I guess. Well, Harlem was you know very rich in culture during that time. The Harlem Renaissance, I believe, was around 1920, 1930. So just a little bit before this work uh, was premiered. Um, but whether it was 
painting or literature or music or dance. I mean, this was a really fertile period uh, in that part of the country. And, you know, Ellington wanted to, be, wanted to be part of that pastiche that was going on and that revolution that was going on in the arts and the music world. And that's one, that's one reason why I, I just have such great reverence for him that we can't be just, uh, I mean, the, the days of being a conductor where you say, I only conduct Beethoven, Brahms, or the Germanic repertoire or just French repertoire. It's really, we're really past that. You really have to have as broad a understanding as you can of as many types of musics as possible. And certainly at the, at the beginning of one's career, you just do everything. You try to do everything. You, you, as you get older, as you get further along, you tend to start to focus on different types of music. But at the beginning to try, and I tell, I tell young people this uh, as well, to try to be open to as many types of musics as possible. And I think that's one thing Duke Ellington tried to do. Also, Duke had uh, did his own jazz orchestration of uh, Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker. I'm, yes. I'm sure you've heard of this piece. Um, if you'll permit me, I, I did find a short bit of an interview I'd like to share where he talks a bit about the piece and play some excerpts here. Now, like the people's people, ready? One, two, three. Columbia Records presents Playback. Your guest, Duke Ellington. Your host, Goddard Lieberson. And uh, don't go away too far. Hi, Goddard. I do. As always, that's wonderful. And I love to hear you play. And as much as I love it, I have to tell you, though, that I think of you... I guess most as the composer of Mood Indigo and Sophisticated Lady. Now, what do you prefer, being a performer or a composer? Oh, honestly, well, you know, you know my musical background. I never went to the conservatory. But I used to have a, a five-piece band at the old Kentucky Club, and every afternoon I used to go to the movies. And the reason was that there was a symphony orchestra in every movie theater on Broadway. And directly from the symphony, I'd go to the Kentucky Club and try to make my five pieces sound like... The symphony. Like a symphony. Yeah, no success, but lots of fun. Well, but did that lead you into composing? Or had well, you done it before? Yeah, I like to compose. Um, well, I like to write, you know, but uh, I'm much too impetuous, I mean, to have to wait uh, to hear what I play. You know, so that's the reason I keep the band. Oh, you mean this is, you keep this band, this is your private band? <laughs> I keep it, yeah. Well, oh, that, yeah, I pay more to hear it than anybody. <laughs> but you know, that's like, uh, you know, the time of Beethoven. Royalty had their private bands to play their music. So maybe that's why they call you Duke. Yeah. But anyway, what is this about you and Tchaikovsky? Because that's what you were playing before. The March oh, by Tchaikovsky for the oh, Nutcracker well, Suite. Yeah, well, I thought that uh, Tchaikovsky to Strayhorn to Ellington might be a pretty good parlay. Well, it, it certainly sounds like it's going to be a good parlay, but I know this, that if Tchaikovsky were around and had a band, he'd be playing Ellington, probably. Oh. Well, what we want to hear now is Ellington playing Tchaikovsky. That's our cue, man. Go on. Ah, ah. <laughs> 
<laughs> the first thing I have to say is that, you know, he's a fantastic conductor. I mean, he's so out of the way. It's so clear. It mm-hmm. doesn't, it doesn't like impose on them. It's, it's not too much, but it's enough. It, you know, and, 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 you know, like he said, he, you know, he never went to a conservatory. He didn't have to have a whole bunch of training in order to, to conduct that. Well, he just does it and it helps to have a drummer, but still, <laughs> yes. he, he's still an extremely good uh, conductor uh, to, to say the least. Um, but how how significant is it that he talks about trying to make his pieces sound like a symphony? That's not a small thing from a jazz musician from any era. Well, you know, as I've said, you know, good music is good music. And that's one reason why the classics uh, tend to uh, survive over so many decades and centuries. Um, he had a great reverence for the symphony orchestra. Uh, one of his favorite pieces was the Nutcracker. Uh, with with this particular piece, uh, he he did team up with Billy Strayhorn, who they who they met back in 1939, and uh, Strayhorn helped create some of his greatest hits, "Take the A Train," "Lush Life," but um, it's this Nutcracker, which he wanted to really put his own stamp uh, on on stamp on it, and not only did he reorchestrate the um, the music, but also just the names. Like the dance of the reed pipes was morphed into toot, toot, tooty, toot. Um, the dance of the sugar plum fairy was all of a sudden called the sugar rum cherry. So <laughs> he, he was trying to look at and the sugar plum fairy turns, the sugar rum cherry turns into kind of a dirty strip tease. So he wanted to, to uh, reclothe the, these classics that we know, but he didn't, he didn't, he wants you to be able to still recognize the the Tchaikovskyness of the piece, but um, but let you see it in a different light. I'm going to write that down. Tchaikovskyness. I'm going to remember. Tchaikovskyness. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so there there is also, of course, the black, brown, and beige, which to me is an entirely surprising piece for its complexity and depth. I mean, it was very surprising the first time I heard it. Um, what influences did Ellington have to produce such a variety of character in his orchestral compositions? Yeah, I mean, this was a really extended piece, a very long piece that he wanted to create. Uh, this was part of, a, of a, an event, an important event that he recognized was going to be a very important event. Uh, January 23rd, 1943, he was going to be introduced at Carnegie Hall and at this point, there'd been very few black artists this time that had graced the stage of that reverent hall. And he wanted to, so he wanted to do something very special. Um, the concert itself was over two and a half hours long, uh, 23 pieces and uh, black, brown and beige was his first, one of his early attempts at trying to get an extended multi-movement piece. Um, when, we, when we listen to Take the A Train, when we listen to uh, Don't Get Around Much Anymore, that can be five minutes long, six minutes long. Now we have a piece that's 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes long, multi-movement, where he's trying to tell a story. So he's trying to expand what we think of as jazz music um, out of that, that crucible of just short pieces, but now uh, looking at it more like a symphony, 
or a, a multi-movement piece that we find in symphonic repertoire. Um, and what's interesting too, is on that concert in 1943, the first piece on the program was kind of a jazz version, but for the most part, it was true to form of the Star Spangled Banner. So in spite of him trying to kind of expand these ideas of what, how we look, listen to music and how we look at music, he still was a proud American and trying to do his part in trying to move the American dream forward for African-Americans, for, for people uh, in Harlem, so that they could realize their dreams. But his tool for doing that was this genre we call jazz. So it was, it was a fascinating program. You can listen to, you can listen to the program um, of that four, 1943 concert online. Um, and, and you'll hear, you, you'll, you'll hear pieces that you do not know of his. And there'll be a few gems that we typically think of Ellington's music, but that just goes to the breadth of his immense repertoire that he created over the years. We only listen to like 10, 15% of his music. There's, a, there's, a, there's such a wealth of music that he created over during his lifetime. You know, it's funny, you, you talk about how he's expanding the, the concept of what we think of as jazz or what, what the audience at the time is thinking of as jazz in that concert. It's possible whether he was doing it on purpose or not, he was doing the opposite as well, or not the opposite, but the reverse as well, that, that he's changing what we think of classical music, which, you know, maybe even today is less um, confined of a term than it was then. Uh, but he was, he was making something. He was not making fun of Tchaikovsky at all, obviously. No. No, but no. he was making, but he made, he didn't just take, and like you said, he made multi-movement work, a multi-movement arrangement. It's not even really an arrangement. It's a reinvention. So, mm -hmm. and, and it's totally serious. And yet it's in the, in the spirit of jazz, which is fun and full of life. And, and yet it's not Tchaikovsky really at all. There's a little bit there, but really it's mostly Duke with a little bit of Tchaikovsky. So he's, he's doing the same in the other direction that he's saying, well, look, there's, like you said, there's music, there's good music, and that's that's it. And, and we can call it other stuff, and that's that's fair. I'm going to say that that's fair. Mm -hmm. But uh, but it really, it's all just music. So we can hear it this way, we can hear it that way. As long as it moves you, then it doesn't matter what we call it, you know, how we arrange it. But I mean, it's, it's interesting that he would do that. And of course, I, I'm sure the history wasn't lost on him that he had that concert and with all the other significances, it's, you know, he was playing music by the person that opened Carnegie hall, not yeah. even that, that long before that. So, yes. Well, you know, there had a tremendous amount of influence by, by classical composers as well. And he gives a lot of credit to um, Claude Debussy for influencing his jazz compositional style, especially in the use of harmony. And if you listen to uh, like Debussy's Reflections in the Water and then go over to the single petal rose, single petal of a rose by Allington, you will absolutely hear the connection points of how he approaches harmony, how he approaches the textures, um, the voicings. Um, 
tremendous amount of influence. Also, uh, Messiaen was a, a tremendous influence on his com compositional style. So he was not someone who shied away from getting deep into the well of, of music and what it has to offer. Um, one thing I just want to share with you, I, and this, this had a profound effect for me when I was just starting out my career. The first orchestra I worked with as assistant conductor uh, was the uh, Savannah Symphony in Savannah, Georgia. And at that time, it was Skitch Henderson, who was their pops conductor. And he was, he passed away in 2005. So this was around 1999, 2001, 2002, around there. And, and I remember meeting Skitch and he, he would get the orchestra just sounding unbelievably incredible. Um, and I said, so what did you do this summer? And he said, well, I went over to, um, I, was, I went over to Europe and I saw the Berlin Philharmonic. And I also went to a concert with the Vienna Philharmonic and was just blown away by the sound of the strings and the, the, Chica uh, the uh, Chicago Symphony. I, I listened to them, I went to hear them play a little bit last year uh, and just the sound of their brass and woodwinds. He was this, here was this jazz pianist, this pops conductor, but he spent so much time just trying to hear the best possible orchestras that he could possibly get his ears around and then bring those same sensibilities to his pops concerts. And he was a tyrant. He knew exactly what he wanted. He got exactly what he wanted from the orchestra, but he was not afraid to go and, 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 listen to other types of other orchestra, other great orchestras and listen to them live in their own homes so that he could bring that to his pops, pops music. So, so sometimes we, we look down on pops conductor, my role up in New Haven is, is as their principal pops conductor, but I try to treat my pops concerts like my classical concerts, like my ML Martin Luther King Day concerts, like my Black History Month concerts. All of those programs deserve the highest level of excellence. And that was one of the lessons that I learned very early in my career from Skitch Henderson. So you, as I understand it, conditions permitting, you do have a couple of concerts planned that includes some American gems, uh, Rhapsody in Blue, Appalachian Spring on one concert and then Broadway Divas on another. Um, as you were, you were talking about earlier, you were saying that, you know, when, when you're young, you do everything. Um, but it really is important that, that we are able to adapt, that we're able to, you know, that the, the, the idea that a conductor can say, you know, I only do this or I only do that. I only do this style that, that that's over. Now I would maybe contend that it never existed, but, but maybe, maybe you're right. Um, but, is this is this kind of programming? I mean, this is you know this is two standards we 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 accept now as American standards, and then some other, another completely different um, style of music, but also American standards. Any kind of Broadway music that that has attained any kind of notoriety is going to be, you know, very popular and and considered a standard. Is this programming well received with with your audiences there in Southeast Texas? I think it is. Um, you know, that particular program, you know, pr programming in general is a tricky business. And it's, it's one of the important areas that I, we as music directors have, have uh, to spend a lot of time. Uh, when I lived in Toledo, I said I was 
I'd gotten a job down here with the Symphony of Southeast Texas in Beaumont. And I said, I'm moving to Beaumont. And people in Toledo said, why are you moving to Beaumont? <laughs> and the reason I wanted to move down here was to be part of the community, to understand the community so that when people see, see me on stage, they may have seen me at Kroger's, they may have seen me at Lowe's, they may have seen me at Burger King and so on. I wanted to be part of the community so I could understand and, and, and possibly give the community the best Symphony of Southeast Texas possible. So when I'm programming, I, I need to find programs and pieces that excite me and that I think that I can have the uh, audience to, to have a, an understanding of it and an appreciation of it. One of the things that we do here, that I've done here over these years, is to talk about the music uh, during the concert and also play excerpts from the music. The challenge with classical music, um, especially when you're in a community that we've had an orchestra for 69 years, that's or 68 years, it's 68th season here. Um, but I think they wanna understand how the structure of things go. So I may play four or five excerpts where I say, listen for this, listen for this, and this means that, and listen for this. And I, I tell you, sometimes when we get to those spots when we're playing the piece through, I can feel the audience like, oh, that's that spot he was talking <laughs> about, you know? And the, the challenge with classical music is that it's long. And so you get kind of lost in the form. But if you're given just a few little signposts of, of, and meanings of things, it makes the experience more meaningful. You know, I, I, I like art, visual art. But when I go into a museum, I am just, it's just overwhelming to me. I, I, I don't know. I'm looking at things. I don't know what I'm looking at. And I have a friend here who is an art professor at Lamar University, our local university here. And uh, we went to the Manil uh, Museum in, in Houston uh, about two, two summers ago, not this past summer, two summers ago. And it was just fascinating. The things she was pointing out to me, look at this, look at these trees here. And she was telling me the history of this behind that particular, that particular artist and what his why was, what the why was for the reason that he, he composed that piece or made that, that piece of art. And it, it really brought the experience to life for me. So I try to do the same thing for our listeners. This may be their first time coming to a symphony concert, so they don't know what to expect, but just to try to make it a little easier for them to, to know where they are in the music, I think it makes a, a big difference. So over the 12 years, we build up a lot of trust and people, I think when they come to a Symphony of Southeast concert here, they know that there's, they're gonna have, hopefully, we hope they're gonna have a meaningful experience. It's great to say they're gonna have a fun experience. Okay, have fun. But I'd, I'd rather for them to have a meaningful experience. You know, you you sound just like another person that we have in common, um, and that's that's Markand Thacker. Oh yes, that is my, that is my man, my uh, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, who you were in his youth orchestra, I believe, many that's many right. many years ago. <laughs> Playing clarinet. <laughs> yeah, Markand is. Uh, you worked with him at Peabody, maybe. Peabody? Uh, yeah, yeah, or, yeah. Yeah, so I grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina, and uh, he was the director for two years of the Greensboro Youth Orchestra. Um, and he was just out of this world then and kind of just different 
and he's still a little bit different. He's no I, different now. He is no different now. <laughs> um, and I actually took a workshop with him about six years ago with the Baltimore Chamber Orchestra, where I was a student, because I'm always trying to learn, trying to learn, trying to learn. And I, I learned so much from him. And it was interesting to see him from now, I'm a professional musician, uh, to see, see how his approach now in my life. And there is a lot there. Um, he, he's very important to me. Yeah, it's still kind of overwhelming. It just reminded yeah. me that, I mean, I was thinking about it anyway, because I was going to talk to you, but but when you're talking about being in, in, you know, in a museum or looking at visual art, I mean, he always uses it. I'm sure he used this at that workshop, but he, he always starts off when he's talking about tempo, yeah. how to find the right tempo. And yes. he uses the same example. And like, and I don't, I don't particularly easily like you just explained, I don't easily connect with visual art. Like right. I do, I can do it if it's, if it's really poignant, but if somebody doesn't lead me through it, then it just doesn't strike me immediately. So I, I need, I need a guide also, but, but he uses that example that if I go into the museum and I, and I go up to a painting, the first thing I have to figure out is where to stand because if yeah. I'm too close, then I don't see the totality of the image. If I'm too far away, I see the image and then too much extra stuff. So I have mm -hmm. to find the right distance to stand. And that's, that's his way of explaining the right tempo. The right tempo is that you hear all of the sounds and you mm -hmm. hear them individually, but you hear them all connected and you don't, you know, all of that stuff balanced together. And it's a very beautiful way of explaining a very complex thing that we, we take for granted a lot, but yeah. we, but, but he has that very particular way of, of talking about it. And I think it's, it's part of the same thing. I mean, it's, 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 it's overwhelming to go into, you know, a place where you have very little point of reference. We look at things every single day, but to look at something that is meant not just to be seen, but to be taken as it is, rather than we look at, you know, we look at a, a television show to take in the story and the characters and the colors and maybe the, the effects. And we, we look at the color, you know, we look at a face in order to see reactions and there's always a, another purpose. But of course with art, it is what it is. It is yeah. exactly what you, you see that it is. And that's, that's off putting because not all of us see that all the time. You and I, we, we hear music every day, so that's an easy thing to slip into. But with the visual, maybe maybe not so much. Well, and, and, you know, there is a visual component. There's a very a huge visual component to conducting. Yeah. And we're in the middle of a pandemic, so we have our masks on. <laughs> and I've, I've conducted uh, probably six or seven concerts now and countless rehearsals during the since the pandemic started. Um, and that having, having that... Part, much of your face covered, that's a big communication blockade. Um, and you, so you try to do <laughs> lots of things with your eyes and you know, your, your hands can, can show a lot of things, but we do, we do have that connection with the face. And um, you know, Mark and trying to see the music here, see and hear the music as a, as a totality, right. that's very, very difficult and it's something that we always we strive for um so I've, I've learned a lot from him and about and about the structure of music and, and why do you make those decisions what was the the, the process to, you came to that conclusion he's constantly asking ourselves that i so wish we could have a seance 
and ask Beethoven, why did you write it that way? Ask Mozart, why did you write it that way? See, I got to say that I think Mark Hand would say he doesn't care why they wrote it that way. And all mm -hmm. that matters <laughs> is the experience in the moment is yes, give the best true. experience. So it doesn't matter what they thought because yeah. Beethoven's the one that wrote down all those tempo markings. And uh, Mark Hand would also say they're all irrelevant. So... <laughs> <laughs> So as you can see, Mark Ann has really strong <laughs> opinions. And, yes, very strong opinions. And he he backs them up. And uh, Cello Badake was a, yep. a very big influence on him. Um, you know, I think we're always we always want to try to learn. You know, we talked about uh, visual art when the pandemic hit. All my conducting stopped for months and months and months. So I decided to take up drawing. And I was, I was terrible. I'm terrible at it, but I got on YouTube. I had some friends here who do drawings. And then I did that for about three months. And then I tried painting this summer, tried to learn a little painting. And it did open my eyes to this. I mean, I, I don't paint. I wouldn't even say I, I paint, but um, it opened my eyes to the, the complexity of it and how, what colors you choose and how the thickness and density and, uh, perspective, different perspectives, one point perspective, two point perspective, and so on. So always trying to learn and and uh, be an, as Bruce Lee would say, to try to be an empty cup. An empty cup. Fill the cup, be the cup. Yes, be the music, as Mark Hand would say. Be the music, yes, that's right. That's right. Okay, enough, enough about Mark Hand. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you have a past and still developing relationship with the inimitable Sting. Uh, yes. With him all over Europe, preparing the orchestra. What was that like? And how did how did the various orchestras receive you? And maybe more interestingly, how did the various orchestras receive you versus the audiences? Yeah. So um, this was back in 2011 um, or 2012, summer of 2012. Um, I got a call from my manager that Sting was looking for someone to rehearse the orchestras on his Symphonicity tour. He wrote an album called Synchronicity and they kind of played with the words and made it Symphonicity. Um, so it was two and a half months left at the end of May and came back sometime in the middle of August. Um, 19 different orchestras, 14 different countries and 23 pieces that I would just rehearse for about um, eight to 12, eight to 12 hours um, of rehearsal with each orchestra. And then I would move on to the next orchestra and Sarah Hicks uh, would do most of the concerts. Um, I did do three concerts with him in, uh, in Spain. And that was just a blast. Cause it was nice to do the rehearsal and do the concert, but it was kind of weird, just like rehearsing, rehearsing, rehearsing. And then I, the orchestras didn't quite get, I was like, okay, good luck. And they're like, but won't we see you on stage? No, you won't. I'm moving on to the next orchestra. So um, the experience was extremely challenging physically. I would do it in a heartbeat again. It was, it was interesting to see music, the, the for-profit side of music and the big money side of music. Um, we, uh, orchestras in, in Europe, Eastern Europe, um, in Russia, uh, for the most part, they all received me well. Some orchestras better than others. Um, some, you know, we know Sting's music so well in this country. Some countries just didn't know his music very well. And so 
they were like, we need to have eight, eight rehearsals on this. I'm like, you really don't, but okay, here we go. Um, but it was, it was very interesting because I, I knew the music cold because I was just doing the same music over and over. And like I said, like in the, in uh, Russia, orchestras were hard to work with there. Um, and, you know, we have, a, we, we also have a way of working with orchestras in this country, which is a pretty friendly approach. It's not, um, you, you have respect and you have control over the situation, but we speak in a relatively friendly way to the orchestra. Different, different countries want you to treat them different ways. And some orchestras want the kind of autocratic hard conductor. And I remember I was in Russia and I, and I said something like, um, and letter A, can we just take it a little bit slower here? Letters B, uh, shorter notes there and a little bit faster at letter C. And the translator came in and it was so aggressive. <laughs> and, and, and you know what? They played it, they played it correctly. They did exactly what he said. They did, didn't seem bothered by it at all. It's not my way. I can't fake that. It's just not the way that I, I do things. Um, but I think they wanted me to be that way, a little bit more hard, hard nosed. Um, so that was interesting to, just to kind of see that. But it, it was an amazing experience. And it was an amazing experience working with all these different cultures, um, these different orchestras, and seeing if we could make it work. And they loved it. And the, I wanted to say this one thing. The thing that was great that from Sting's perspective, what they wanted to do, the, the first part of the tour, first iteration of this tour before I came on board, they just took one orchestra around to the different places, which is extremely exp expensive. One orchestra around. But so when I came aboard, they wanted these regional orchestras that would play several concerts in that region and then they go to the next orchestra. It was great for the orchestra. It was the orchestra's in front of a crowd of 10, 15, 20,000 people, even though they're there to see Sting and Sting, but Sting was great at saying, give a big round of applause for this incredible orchestra. He would do that several times throughout. It was just great publicity for that orchestra. So I take my hat off to him. I was supposed to do a concert with him this past December. And of course the COVID hit. So it's been moved to November of 2021. So uh, in, in Greensboro where I grew up. Um, but it was an incredible experience. I mean, that's got to be, I, I, I kind of imagine that it, at some point it was kind of like you didn't have time to think about it at yeah. all. You're just kind of going from one place to the next and you're like, okay, I don't know where I am, but let's, let's start. Let's <laughs> and, and music is a universal language. And so you can, there's a lot you can get, through, uh, get through with like Italian descriptions that we use. Um, it was cumbersome to have a translator and it was really cumbersome. The translator was not a musician because uh, mm -hmm. they would, it, they would translate things literally and that would not, but you figure out ways, you figure out how to get around and, and make things happen. And um, it, like I said, it, it was, it was a great experience, but it, and it was very grueling and tiring. I do it in a You said you went, you went a few days ahead of every, uh, uh, ahead yeah. of the band, right? Right. And then once we stacked about five or six orchestras, I did about five, six orchestras, then I could get a break. And I actually, I actually traveled with the band, which was really cool. Nice. And um, yeah, and got to see, see what was working, what wasn't working in the shows and the concerts and everything. So um, that, that was the last, he, 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 they did about, 
I don't know, 200 concerts before I came on board. And so Sarah and myself uh, did those last, she, I think she did 60 concerts uh, with them on that particular tour. So onward and upward. And, and I will say this too, is that, you know, Sting, he went on to another project and then he went on to this, this Broadway thing, which was mildly successful. Then he went on to do other projects. That's what to be, you have to be ever evolving whether you're a conductor, whether you're a pop musician, um, whether you are a gospel musician, you need to be constantly evolving. So, so slightly related to this, I I'm curious what your experience has been as a black conductor. You're obviously extremely successful. And, and I, I think that, you know, my audience and I would like to know how your career and life has navigated to this point. Well, music is music and uh, a, a teacher of ours, Mark Gibson, said, the music is your shield. Um, what I find is that for orchestras, the orchestra musicians, whether you're black, whether you're white, whether you're Asian, whether you're woman, male, doesn't matter as much as do we sound better? Are you using our time efficiently? Are you, um, are you helping us to be better musicians? Are you encouraging? Are you making, making a nice environment? Where it matters more, your gender, your race, your um, sexual preference is to the administration. So we all get labels and um, I've, done, I've done a lot of Martin Luther King Day concerts, lots of concerts for black during Black History Month. And, and I do them, I, I don't have, a, I have colleagues of my black conductors of mine who, who absolutely will not do those concerts. Okay, I, I see where they're coming from. For me, I think it is a chance, even though those concerts aren't often publicized very well, they want you to do like, I'm gonna make this up, Shostakovich's 10th Symphony, uh, La Valse and Daphnis and Chloe, and they went in one rehearsal with choir. I mean, they put all these incredible demands on you and okay, it's, it's not a great situation but it is a situation and it's a situation to try to reach out. And, you know, for me, when I was growing up, both my parents were music teachers. Uh, they taught in the black colleges and the importance of education, but they exposed me to symphonic and classical music when I was growing up. And you never know who's the, who might get a spark from that. And so when I see an audience filled with black folks, I, I think this is a good thing. And I, at the end of the concert, I always say to the audience, thank you for coming. Thank you. This orchestra plays in March, <laughs> April, May, June, and so on. So please continue to support the, the arts and support this orchestra throughout the entire season. Come back and see this orchestra, not just on this day, but throughout the entire season. And I also say to the administrators, I can conduct in February and March and April <laughs> and May. And yeah, they all, there's certain orchestras who will only call me during that time. <laughs> and oh, thank you. But I think they see you in a certain light. So in, in that regard, it's, it's not good. And in um, trying to make a career in music, first thing is competence. Um, they may hire you because you're a black conductor, but they won't hire you back if you're not a good conductor. You've got to be competent. You've got to be good and be the best artist. You know, I never say um, practice makes perfect. I say practice makes excellence. Expect excellence. 
um, in these concerts. I try to treat them as seriously as possible. I just want to say thank you for asking me that question. Absolutely. Um, so you do have other, you know, a couple of other projects coming up. Um, you do have that other concert with Sting. You have Texas Tenors, mm-hmm. which, which I, it's got to be like the 2000th iteration of that, uh, <laughs> that idea. <laughs> and and yes. also some work at Interlochen, uh, right. Michigan. Uh, it seems you're staying quite busy. I'm staying busy as I can. You know, a lot of concerts right now and what we're doing here are concerts with no intermission. So they end up about 60 to 65 minutes. Um, and we are live streaming. Hopefully by next season, we can go back to full concerts. Interlochen is a magical place for me. I went there before my senior year in high school. I worked at Burger King that year. So I got half money to go. And um, it was a, a, an incredible summer. So I was supposed to go there back there this past summer but it got canceled and they're trying to, to put something together. One of the areas I, I wish I had more experience in, in my uh, conducting career is as a, as a teacher. I, I enjoy working with young people. Um, I enjoy, I enjoy teaching and opening their eyes and by opening their eyes, it opens my eyes as well to, to certain things. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to be able to go back to and go to interlock in this summer and, and teach uh, work with one of the high school orchestras there. Uh, but you know, it's every region is different. Um, New Haven is not having any concerts until June. Um, I'm, so what we're doing here, our next one's February 20th. Then we have the, the uh, Broadway Divas in March. Then our closing concert uh, is April 10th. And we're hoping we're gonna be able to do it or some iteration of it. But all those will be, again, without intermission. And we're doubling up on the concerts so that we can split our audience in half so we have fewer people at you know any particular concert, but this this is a tough time. We will get through this, but it's going to take patience. And so far, for most communities, I think the community is trying to stick with their orchestras. So we appreciate. It. We're grateful for that. It seems like in some cases, some communities are are even really attaching to their to their orchestras and probably other similar organizations. And, and, and I ask people that I come into contact with them, you know, like, you know, I took my, my bows to be rehaired finally after mm-hmm. nearly a year, um, because I put it off that long. Cause I was like, oh, I don't really need to <laughs> rehear. Um, and I asked them, you know, it was in Atlanta and I asked them, you know, how's it been? And they were like, at first we missed a couple of weeks. It was pretty slow, but then after that it picked up and we've been too busy. Wow. So, and, and, uh, somebody came to, to tune the piano the other day and I asked him this, and he said basically the same thing at first people stopped. And then all of a sudden we can't keep up with all the new people. We sometimes yeah. have to put off people that we've had. So people are embracing these, uh, this, you know, they're like, well, I don't know. I've got some more time on my hands. Maybe I will get out that instrument that I used to play. And, and in some, you know, for some people, maybe they didn't play an instrument, but, you know, they want to go to concerts. Maybe they, you know, they want to go to a museum, whatever. Like they're right. They seem to be reattaching in a stronger way. And so you're right. I think I think once we get through it, we have to be ready for that because a reset, a reset is is whether we like it or not. A reset, it means things are going to change. Yeah. Um, even if if everything went back to the way that it was before and nothing else changed, which I can't see that's possible, but even if it did, the fact that there was a huge pause means that 
somebody's going to change. Somebody's right. going to expect something different. And that somebody is many, many thousands of people and all in different ways. So that means you're right. Like we have to adapt. We have to adapt to not one thing, but all different things that, that people are going to want. Our audiences are going to change their tastes. They usually change anyway, but it changes over time. But now it's going to happen. It's seemingly all at once to us. Yeah. And, and you know what they want, how they want it. Are they always going to want streaming now? in addition to being able to come into a concert, are they always going to want to be spaced out? So that's going to hurt ticket sales. Or maybe they, maybe that goes by the wayside. And maybe they're like, man, I'm so glad we can be next to people again. And they're going to pack it in. And all of a sudden, we're going to have full houses, unlike we've had for many, many years, most of the time. So it, it could be anything. But seriously, it's this is this is kind of an exciting time, except for the fact that it's a pandemic. I mean, I choose to see it that way. That it's no, 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 no. I, I, I'm with you. I'm a glass half full type of person. Uh, this pandemic has been <laughs> tough to keep that perspective, to be honest with you, especially when it first hit. Uh, it really took me into a, a, I was just, didn't know what to do. Um, but the concerts that we've had, we had the first half of our season in uh, October, October, November, and December, we had audiences. And I, the people that came, they were really stoked about it. They were really, because they just wanted to get out. And we had them socially distanced. I mean, we had lots of room and we had to reseat everyone. We had lots of room, um, but they were just so excited. Over, over the holiday, I went to Greensboro to see my mom for, the, for Christmas. And my brother and his family came to town. We went to see Wonder Woman uh, at, the, at the movie theater. And oh, it, not a great movie. Hmm. But it was so great to be in a movie theater, you know, and, uh, you know, it was just great. Nice to be out. And I think people people are aching for that. Um, but they got to find their comfort place. So uh, we are doing the live streaming. Um, and, and I think that's a benefit from we're trying we're having to come up with creative ways to try to present our music. Would we even be doing this podcast, this interview tonight, today, if this pandemic was going, who knows? But it, it's causing people to reach out and uh, get to know people and take different approaches to how we make art. That's not just a bad thing. We have to keep evolving. Yeah. You know, even even in a, a very similar way, I teach at the, the Atlanta Music Project, which has been around now 11 years. And... And so this year, they they said at the very beginning, um, Aisha Moody is is the one that was like addressing all of the the faculty, and she said, you know, we're we're committing fully to being uh, virtual this entire year. We're not going to do the going back and forth. We're not going to have this plan or that plan. We're just going to do it the whole year, for better or worse. And it went beyond that because now, because you know, everything is a video, and of course, it's with kids, so it's. You know, as much trouble as we have with the technology, sometimes the kids are going to have an even harder trouble because they can't say to their parents, I need a $300 microphone, mom. I, yeah, I, right. It's not as easy right. to do that. So, uh, so, but what, what they are encouraging and they're starting to get results from is say, look, if we're going to do a video, then go all out. Mm -hmm. Pick where you're going to be. Pick what you're wearing. Pick how you want the you know the cinematography to be. Go crazy because because like you're saying, 
now if if it's going to be virtual, if it's going to be filmed, if it's going to be streamed, if it's going to be any of these things, why not do all the things that, you know, you can normally do, you know, when you're when you're editing a show, editing a movie, whatever, and make it even that more engaging of a concert. And and we're not changing necessarily the music. Maybe in some cases we are, but you know, you know, hopefully we do it tastefully, but we're we're in, we're creating a whole new thing here, mm-hmm. and and it can't be a bad thing. That particular element can't be a bad thing. We will never replace like live concerts. I mean, there's yeah. something about being in a hall. There's something about interacting with people and and just everyone being in that same space with that same energy of trying of looking at this concert and being moved by that concert. But there are enhancements that can happen. This, this is forcing us to, to look at. And um, we, we definitely would not be live streaming our concerts had we not, if we weren't going through a pandemic right now. Uh, it just wouldn't even be. Uh, but we quickly surmised that that's what we needed to do. So we're making that happen. Um, well, well like how long will it continue? That's the, the question. But what else can it lead to? I think that's also what we need to be looking up the, at the horizon. This this is a good start with the with the live streaming, but what else can it lead to? So um, it's making it's making our it's changing our lives and it's changing our perspective on things. That um, you know you you could look at art online. You can look at, but there's something about being in that space. But um, I, I mean, I think we're reaching out with this live streaming. I think we're reaching out to a whole different group of people uh, that. I don't think that can be a bad thing. So we'll see what we'll see what happens. But we're grateful. We're grateful for the people that come. I'm grateful to the musicians. Uh, we this summer we were trying to figure out the safest way we could do our concerts for our musicians, um, and they've really stuck by us. Many, many of our musicians come in from Houston, as you probably know, and you know Houston's been a real hot spot. Um, but the Houston, I think what's helped us is the Houston Symphony has continued to, to do concerts. So that is, makes it for a good case for us to, to continue to do concerts uh, with our orchestra. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Grateful. Grateful, though. Grateful for what we get to do and get to share and everything. Right. You know, one more thing I have to mention, because uh, she wouldn't uh, forgive me if I didn't. Um, my mother is living very near New Haven. And when I mentioned that I was interviewing you, she was like, oh, I can't believe they're not doing anything right now. <laughs> She's very <I> disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think part of it, too, is I just alluded to the Houston Symphony is performing. And so it kind of gives us right. the New York, New York Philharmonic is not performing. Right. And New, as you know, New Haven is near New York City. Yeah. And those types of large ensembles, they have a ripple effect in the whole region. So that's, I think that was a big part of the decision, but it's, it's tough and it's tough from state to state and region to region. Um, our executive director here in Beaumont, he, he has a meeting with, uh, Doug Fairs, our executive director, he has a meeting, Zoom meeting with the fellow executive directors of, of, of Texas orchestras our size every Wednesday. And yeah, it's, it's like apples and oranges from how this group deals with it versus this group versus this group over here. So you have to do what you think is best for your community. And, um, 
And they're, they're trying to maintain an online presence, which I think they're doing a very good job of that up in New Haven. Right. Well, they're, they're going to do what they can do. Yeah. Well, Maestro, it has been a pleasure. Um, I'll definitely want to have you on again. And then when all of this clears up, then I'll bring the podcast to you. How about that? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fabulous. Give me one more reason to come back to Texas. <laughs> come back to Texas. Or maybe I'll come to you. I've been to Atlanta a lot. That's true. That's true. Yeah. You're, you're, uh, you'll be jet setting the moment that uh, this clears up too. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's great to meet you. Thank you for the invitation to be part of your show. Uh, you do a great job and it's been delightful chatting with you. All right. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. If you like what you have heard and want to support the advocacy of American orchestral music, please consider signing up to donate regularly at patreon.com for our continued production of this podcast. Also, subscribe for updates wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.